Hello and welcome to What We've Learned. It's me, Steve Kemish, and it's Shane Redding as ever. Hello, Shane. Hello, Steve. How are you this week? Well, I'm very well, thank you very much. Very well um, and, and quite excited. I'm often in awe of our guest, having known her not quite as long as you, as I'm sure we'll talk about, but many a year, Julia Porter, who always inspires uh, and makes me feel, dare I say it, slightly inadequate in terms of what she's achieved. Um, a, a fascinating person. Tell us Absolutely. more, Shane. Who have we yeah. got? Really pleased that Julia Porter's joining us. Um, she's currently a partner in the Data Protection Network Associates, which is a consultancy and thought leadership business focusing on data and governance. And really interesting to hear from her about her, if you like, current role, how she's ended up in a portfolio career when perhaps that wasn't where she thought she might uh, end up when she started out. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to learn an awful lot from her and I'm sure she's got an awful lot of value to say. So rather than us hold on too long, Shane, shall we bring her in? Yes, let's. So hi, Julia. It's great to have you with us and um, looking forward to learning what you've learned. Hi, Shane. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yes, plenty has been going on in lockdown. In fact, we have set up a whole new business, which has been good fun and interesting when you haven't met your new colleagues for more than six months now, actually. I haven't seen them since March. So we have got very adept at uh, working online, using Slack, using Zoom calls, like lots of other people have as well, um, and getting ourselves organised, ready for when the lockdown is lifted and when we get back to normal commercial activities. Which instantly makes me feel entirely inadequate, Julia, because I've, all I've managed to do is decorate a couple of bedrooms whilst uh, lockdown. You've started a whole business, which is to be applauded, uh, even if you've not met them. So tell us about that. What have you been up to? What's the, what's the business focused on? So it's a data protection and uh, privacy consultancy called the Data Protection Network. Um, it was born out of um, the old Op4 um, company, which sadly went into administration early part of this year. So we were able to acquire the Data Protection Network website. And since then, we have um, rebranded. We have introduced a lot of new content, started launching webinars, produced some guidance um, and started looking for business. So it's been an interesting time when you pretty much start from scratch. But equally, as a partnership, you've got interesting challenges around making sure that you work with each other in a collaborative way. There isn't one person in charge, so that's presented a few challenges sometimes. But I think we all feel that we're an interesting mix. We're all very different, but in combination, it's a strong proposition. So that's interesting you say about, you know, your different skills and interesting mix. And, um, you know, just talk a little bit more about what you think the skills are that you need in a consultancy and thought leadership business that's focused around data protection and governance what are those skills well i mean you've got skills around the consultancy itself so you need the subject matter experts so if you look at us we are all subject matter experts but in slightly different places so my area of interest is advertising and digital marketing in particular although i can do all the other stuff but that's what i'm particularly interested in my two colleagues have interests in other areas so the subject matter expert piece means that we can support each other. But then there's other sides of the business around just simple things like getting the finances up and running, 
making sure that we get our email campaigns sorted out properly, that we, you know, do the website correctly. And we, one of our team is, um, you know, an editorial person. So that's been really helpful. I've been looking after the finances. So actually what we've been able to do is divvy up all the work and not overlap too much. And I think that makes a huge difference because in a small business, there's always a danger of everyone trying to do everything. Um, and what we are trying to do is not do everything and really make sure that we're allocating the jobs that we're all best equipped to do. I mean, it's a constant challenge because, you know, you're keen to get on with it. But, you know, small businesses often struggle with everyone trying to do everything and then it turns into a big muddle. So that's the bit that we're trying to avoid. Or everyone trying to do everything and not focusing on the tasks that are most important to get the business kind of lifting and going, I suppose. You know, you've got to you've got to gain customers and, and and keep customers rather than just have an incredibly slick process but no one billing i guess well absolutely steve i mean one one of the interesting things actually the three of us I'm, i would say i'm probably the most sales focused one um you know i actually started my career in a sales job and so if there's any kind of selling that needs doing or pitching then certainly i often end up being the lead person on that um so i think it's recognizing how we need to get to the place we need to get to. And the other thing is, is making sure that we actually follow through and use the things we've invested in properly. So for instance, we, we decided to invest in using a webinar tool. So actually if we invested in the platform and we did our first webinar ourselves um, with Privacy Question Time a couple of weeks ago, then we now need to kind of have a program of webinars every month, at least one a month, and make full use of the things that we've invested in. The danger is they're like sort of, you know, baubles as you kind of pick up a bauble and think, oh, that's nice, but actually you've got to kind of follow through. And I think the follow through is really important. I think that's really interesting because I think that there are many businesses that don't do that very well, whether they're small or large. And I think across your your career, you've, you've worked in very different size organisations and it's really interesting to hear you started in sales so perhaps you know when you started out tell us a little bit about your your first job and what that was uh, presumably you had no idea that you were going to be ending up um running a consulting advisory business around governance that's not where you started was it no 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 and and i think that um that that's a reflection i guess of my there's a there's an element of me which is a little bit restless and so i guess i'm always looking to learn something new or move on to something new that doesn't mean to say i don't like finishing things but i do like learning things so my first job was um in advertising sales with a regional newspaper called the hemel hempstead post echo um, which doesn't exist anymore so it was a graduate scheme and i didn't actually want to get into advertising sales at all but i took the job because i couldn't get a job in advertising i wanted to work in advertising agencies that was my mission um, but I couldn't initially get a job in advertising. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do a stepping stone thing is I definitely need to get a job. Let's get a job in something that's related. Um, so I worked in classified sales, display sales, um, learned how to do cold calling. And back then, um, it, uh, the Hemel Post Echo was part of Thompson Regional Newspapers. And Thompson Regional Newspapers had a reputation for training good salespeople and also training good journalists. So it was really thorough sales training. So the thing I got out of that more than anything else was knowing how to sell. And in fact, one of the things I find really interesting these days is that, that lots of organizations don't seem to invest as much money into training people to sell as one might expect. 
So I hated the job though, absolutely hated it. <laughs> when, when you're sitting on a telephone and they used to do these holiday supplements in the newspaper to kind of generate extra cash. So they give you a guidebook from Devon, say, so imagine we're in Hertfordshire, in Devon, they said, right, we're going to do a holiday supplement. So here's a guidebook for Devon, phone up every single hotel in Devon and ask them if they want to do an ad in our holiday supplements. So this is like cold calling, horrible cold calling. Um, and you just think, why would anyone ever buy one of these dreadful ads? But they did. But it, what, it, what it really taught me more than anything else is, A, someone was making you make these calls, so you couldn't not do it. But actually, it taught you resilience because you were phoning up these people out of the blue, doing your pitch, refining your sales pitch, and actually winning business, <laughs> remarkably. I look back on it and I think, I don't know how I managed to actually win business. So, so from that side of things, it was good learning to sell. It was horrible though, as a job, it was a, um, a business that was in decline, um, very negative. It was in Hemel Hempstead. I didn't really like Hemel Hempstead very much. I wanted to be in London. So I lasted a year, but it taught me a lot. Um, and I think this is one of the things I've learned back to my sort of, what have I learned about my career is that even the worst job will teach you something good even if it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. But certainly the, the Hemel Hempstead Post Echo job taught me how to sell and I've used it over and over again. And I think even if you're not- So that builds you a really thick skin, Julia, just listening into that from the horror stories of, of others. I don't know whether it's the culture of standing on a desk till you made a sale, ring a bell, all those kind of stories, almost Glen Gary, Glen Ross style. But just to, just to take that point just for a second of, of now back to today, that thick skin of actually somebody's got to sell. It may not be something we want to do. If you're starting a business, anyone listening in is, you may be a subject matter expert. And I, I see this quite often with technology companies, you know, startups that have got a brilliant product and a brilliant idea, but forget the fact they need to do that, those hard yards and have that almost rhino skin to, we just got to keep knocking the door until somebody answers. Yes. Sounds I, like it's been real learning from there to, to carry through the whole time. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And certainly I'm using some of that with um, the data protection network. So at the point when you think, oh, should I really chase them again? I've already emailed them once. The answer is yes, you should definitely chase them again because you don't need to be rude or anything like that. But, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of your prospect, the prospect's probably busy doing a thousand other things and may have forgotten about it. And certainly I've sent emails to people and said, oh, just, you know, just checking in, just seeing how you are, blah, blah. And it just jogs their memory. So it's very important to keep on. I think selling now certainly isn't like Glengarry Glen Ross anymore. Certainly not like that regional newspaper. I'd never like to sell like that again. But the fact is keeping going and not giving up is important. And um, not feeling worried about what people might think about you is also important because if you do your job professionally they'll recognize that you're doing your job professionally the people who just keep on hammering away saying the same things and are behaving in a somewhat tone deaf way are the ones that are annoying so i think selling properly and listening to what your prospects are saying is is key lots of people don't listen i think you know the training will tell you listen carefully and then respond to what they say I think that's sort of really interesting for all of us and sort of reflecting on that and just we're all so busy and people have got different challenges it's not because they don't want to engage it as you pointed out it's just there's so much going on and that that resilience that you took out I think is really interesting because I think you mentioned you know that that got you through a, a job you didn't really 
you know, enjoy necessarily, but did it get you the next job that you wanted and did it get you into advertising? Well, sort of yes and no. I mean, one of the other lessons I've learned about jobs and getting jobs is that probably the majority of the jobs I have got have been through networking. And actually what happened with that job, uh, with the job I've got next was that it was the friend of a friend who worked in a media agency, an advertising agency in central London, who had a vacancy in their media department. And then they introduced me to them. So it's that letting people know what you want is important. Lots of people don't do that because they think, oh, I don't know. Letting people know what you want. And then when something pops up, they'll remember you. And in fact, that's exactly what happened to me. If I look back on it now, it was a classic piece of networking, even though at the time, I didn't really see it like that because I was just out at the pub one night with a friend of mine whose friend worked in advertising and that was it. So that's how the second job came along. And then after that, and that was in Covent Garden. And after that, then I moved into London and then I had three more, no, two more agency jobs after that before I moved on to do my master's degree. Pubs. Um, I, you mentioned pubs. I remember those. Those are places that we used to all do business many, many months ago. I mean, there's, there's a real learning there, isn't it? That networking. That, and actually, Shane, you and Julia are both very, very good examples of this, of, of maintaining a network, because you just never know, Julia, who might be in a pub or on a webinar or on a podcast or, dare I say, listening to a podcast that might go, oh, actually, that person. It's all about, you know, continually, not for vacuous reasons of collecting followers, which often I think people think of, of networking, but it is that build a network of trusted people and, and, and pay it forward, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, so I can think of nothing worse than going to a drinks reception or networking event and walking up to people and starting talking. I find that very difficult. Thrusting a business card in their hand. Absolutely. That kind of networking I think Absolutely. people fear, I mean, don't they? Yes, really find that hard. But, you know, I am naturally, um, I like people around me. I like engaging with people. You know, that's just my personality. And so actually having a network of friends and colleagues and contacts is something I find relatively easy. To... Sorry. That was well, if you're going to talk about friends, they're likely to phone you, Julia, at that <laughs> point. That's the perfect time for a phone call when, when we're doing a networking podcast. Do you carry on. Together. It was on silent. And now no, I'm... no, I think you did that on purpose to prove just how strong your network is. That's, but, uh, but the I listeners think, will applaud that. But I think a lot of people don't necessarily find it that easy. I mean, in the end, I just, I just like hanging out with people. And so going to the pub and things like that is something that I quite like doing. But not everyone would like doing that. And I think you just take... You know, the business networking can just be having a conversation with one person over a cup of coffee. It does not need to be going to the painful networking events. Mm -hmm. And you build them up over time. If I think about some of the people I know, and I mean, like Shane is a perfect example of that. It's like Shane and I have known each other for 25 years. I think we calculated the other day. So it's just friendships and, you know, people you like spending time with as much as anything else. I think that's an interesting point about, you know, you don't necessarily have to enjoy all aspects of something. Um, like you mentioned, you know, the worst nightmare being at a, a party or a, you know, whereas that would be my, oh, my happy place as most people who know me, know me well is like, you know, I love, I love parties. I love meeting people. I'm very happy to go out to people. But I think it's that reflection of actually perhaps the way the world has changed. I certainly, when we met, kept 
business and work very separate. And I don't, I think that's to be one of the biggest changes, even this year is that, you know, the opening up of, um, you know, Zoom into our homes is those barriers have gone. And do you think that makes networking easier now, Julia, or, or is it all a bit blurred and muddled? Um, I mean, it's easy for us because, you know, we've, we've built our network over our careers, but somebody starting out now, you can't go to the pub and you can't have a coffee. So what are you seeing that people are doing instead? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think networking now for people who don't have, have are not as old as us is actually quite difficult because there's a real danger, I think, in your Zoom land that that you become very isolated because, in fact, it is passing meetings as well or meeting people through a different kind of contact that, that can develop these relationships. So, I mean, I think you, you see lots of... Um, zoom calls or zoom meetings or socials or all of those kind of things but fundamentally you know we've got into this groove of there's many webinars well even with webinars all you're doing is a kind of point to point conversation or posting your question in the chat room um so it's not easy and and again you know i think we're in a very privileged position in that a we know quite a lot of people we're in a nice comfortable home um, there are lots of people who are trying to do their jobs from their living room or their relatively small flat. And I think that causes all sorts of difficulties in terms of you know, mental health and their ability to kind of create some boundaries between their work life and um, their home life. So any tips for those who, who perhaps are in that situation? You know, is there anything that you've seen perhaps people haven't got a network trying to build it do well so what it sort of in the lockdown situation yeah um well so interestingly so one of the things that i have as a task whilst i've been in lockdown is looking after my daughter's rather large dog and um what's good about having a dog and you can borrow someone's dog as well my neighbor borrowed our dog every day during lockdown is that you go to the park and you meet people in the park and you do it you can do it in a socially distanced way and not break any of the rules and in fact I've created quite a big network in the park with people who will bring their dogs out in the morning and then you just start chatting and I think that's a really good way of just breaking away from your laptop and your desk and your table whilst also getting some much needed exercise because I think the other problem or the other danger is that you can sit at home all day long literally you know I don't know walk 500 steps or something and not feel particularly good at the end of the day actually feel quite jaded as if you do take the dog out for a walk and in this lockdown I'm deliberately taking the dog out at lunchtime for an hour or two and then you come back during the rest of the day and think okay I feel good now because I've been from my exercise I've met a couple of people I've had a bit of a chat and now I can come home and settle down to doing some work I think it's, uh, by the way, borrowmydoggy.com. It literally plays to that. If people are listening going, do I have to buy a dog to be able to play this game? You could. And it's not about dog, is it? It's as much as about you, Julia, of just giving yourself the chance to get out, um, to meet people. But but also, I think what a lot of people have learned, there we are, just as we demonstrated. We've almost prompted, you like the BBC Radiophonics department, Julia. We wanted you to make a phone, have, receive a phone call when we talk networking and a dog to bark when we talk dogs. Um, well, we will test you with other sounds as we go. Um, is that actually people have changed their working patterns where 
and I, I've had the luxury of working from home quite a lot over the last five or six years, although we have an office. So I'm quite used to it and I'm set up for it. But even now, I still struggle to think, is it, am I allowed to go out at 11 o'clock in the morning? I'd normally feel I should be on a call or in a meeting. So people have just had to learn to adapt their working practices. Um, and because a lot of people are doing it, there are a lot more people out on the streets that whether they're with dog or not, that you might just strike up a friendship or a conversation with. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think I think I think you have to create boundaries and you have to kind of delineate the day a bit, which is why this time round I've gone for the couple of hours off at lunchtime piece, not least because it gets dark at like five o'clock, whereas, you know, before I used to go out in the evening. So I think you do need to carve out that time and not feel guilty about it. I mean, it it is the freelancer's curse, to be honest, not ever wanting to stop working because you're worried that well I might not have any work next week or you know so so actually creating that discipline is important and I think for people like us because I've been freelancing for the last four years then it's easier than it is for individuals who who have had a very structured life going into the office meeting with their friends and their colleagues doing their work coming home again and I think for them where you're having to make a fairly major transition in very short order I think there's been some you know, greater difficulties actually I have a client who um, has a one-bedroom flat and she says she literally sees nobody um, she's just working from her kitchen all the time and I think that mm-hmm. causes real challenges actually that point about you know the freedom of running your own company freelancing gig economy whatever it is I think that we are very fortunate those of us have done it you know I've done it for a very long time. It's it's something you very get used to. And it's very easy to forget how different it is in a, an enterprise environment. And in fact, Ruth Connor, who was a previous guest on, on the What We've Learned um, podcast, I really admire her because she, for her team, has said, what we're going to do is have walking meetings. We'll all get our, we won't be on Zoom, we'll, or we will, but we'll do it just um, via our mobiles without the cameras on. And we will walk and talk in the daylight. And actually, if anybody else wants to take a break during the day and would rather work when it's dark. And I think that leadership is really important. We're recognising that you need to change and make it work for everybody. And I know you, Julia, have had an amazing also enterprise career and had lots of commercial skills and, you know, worked for some very big companies. And you must probably reflect that that would be a very different place to be rather than doing what you're doing now. But you also mentioned that you did your MBA, London Business School. Is that what sort of really transformed your career and going into corporate? Was that the start of it? Yes. Yes, it was. So I spent seven years in advertising in three agencies um, and had the best time. This was in the late 80s when it was a good time to be working in advertising. Um, you know, my main challenge each morning was to figure out how many lunches I should have that week and where should I be going for lunch because all the media owners just took all the media buyers out for lunch. So that was a good time. But in the end, actually, I got quite bored. And, um, you know, once I, I worked on the Barclays account at my last agency, and once I'd done their media plan for the third year, I thought, well, I'm not sure I really want to do this anymore. So I decided to do an MBA and I did a full-time MBA, which meant I gave up work for two years and fully focused on it. And I think that was a good thing to do because I wanted to really figure out um, what I wanted to do with my career. I'd have to say nowadays, so that was 1990 to 92, I'm not sure people can afford to do that anymore. The fees are so high. 
I think most, if you look at LBS these days, the proportion of students are mostly international students, although that obviously may change, and um, people who are funded by their companies. So I think self-funded MBAs these days is a very rare thing. So anyway, yes, I decided to um, actually work in media. I liked media. I thought I want to work in a media company. And so after the MBA, which was sort of strategy and finance and operations and HR and all sorts of stuff, so I then went to work for IPC magazines, which then subsequently became Time Inc. And that was um, where I started off as a strategic planning manager for the CEO and then became their subscriptions director. And I guess that's the point where my love affair with subscriptions and direct marketing and data and customers and CRM started. So that's sort of 25 years ago. And that's obviously when you and I met Shane. So data and customer data and databases has been a large part of my career for all of that time. And again, that was really a bit of an accident. It wasn't a plan. You know, I am quite numerate, but it wasn't something I thought, oh, I really want to get into databases. It, it was an opportunity that arose and um, a bit of very good luck in that my CEO effectively offered me a job and gave me an opportunity, which, you know, I may not necessarily have been fully qualified for at that time, but he coached me into the role. So I have a lot to thank him for, because I think he really kick-started the corporate part of my career gave me opportunities to really learn and thrive and grow. I was going to ask actually where the seed of, of that data centricity came from, Julia, and you, you've just beaten me to it really with that answer. And it, it, it could easily flash us forward to the, to, to the now and the future, which I want to come on to. But I, I, we met back in 2007 when you were at ITV. And what I was going to also ask you a bit about, not so much at ITV, but maybe, was you've obviously had that digital experience as well. Um, would you say that that's, you know, it's just added another string to your bow of, of understanding the digital landscape? And, and 13 years ago is quite a long time in terms of the maturity of digital. Did, was that luck? Was that, a, well, actually, I've got data under my belt, digital's the next thing. How did that step come about? So, so that wasn't luck, actually. I did decide that's what I wanted to do. So, in fact, I left... So, IPC were just... It was just at the beginning of when websites were starting to be built. And... Um, IPC got a, quite a significant investment actually to build out their digital business but at that point had decided that actually digital was completely separate to everything else so I was looking after subscriptions and mail order and customer database and all sorts of other things so in fact they said to me no no we don't want you to be involved with this digital stuff um, you carry on doing what you're doing and then we'll have a completely different place for digital which felt all wrong to me um, and so at that point I decided it was time to move on. About a year or two of um, freelancing, but then I went to work for a digital company, a company called ImageNet, which is um, still in existence and is now part of Getty Images. And ImageNet was um, a distribution company. It distributed uh, images, publicity images for the movie business. So it was a website um, where images were uploaded in the US from all the big movie companies like Disney and Paramount. Um, and then they were distributed via our service globally to 60 or 65 other territories. So we had a website that was based in the U that, that was UK centering. At the point I joined the company, they were given, they raised five million pounds from a venture capitalist in order to expand the business. So we rebuilt the website, translated it into 17 languages, set up six um, offices. And I was looking after marketing and the whole kind of client care piece. So 
I have first-hand experience of working in a digital business from 2002 to 2006 at a point when, yeah, it was all pretty early days actually. And that has, that helped enormously because it meant I understood or learned very early on what it was like to work with developers and development teams and how you kind of get an organization thinking about technology. But as the point you made earlier, Steve, is that, you know, the developers are often thinking about their solution, not necessarily always thinking about what the customer needs. So it was a very interesting and sometimes very difficult experience, but that's where, you know, my digital experience started. So it's nearly 20 years ago now. And you're right, it's, that's a lot of experience relative to lots of other people. But certainly if you put digital plus data together, then that's quite a useful combination now. So the digital, oh, sorry, Steve. So no, I'm going to say go ahead. digital and data, but you know, that's, that is really now seems very obvious and it's like, yes, it's a completely, you know, logical career path, but actually for your, your next appointment in terms of getting on the board, wasn't the, the classic background, was it? So what, what do you think was, it that got you sort of your first board appointment um so my first board appointment was um actually via uh itv and in fact for anyone who wants to become a ned it's it's a good way to start so in fact i was appointed as um, a board director on freeview so an itv appointed board director on freeview and also on the thinkbox which was the trade body for the tv business and so what that meant was I was representing ITV on the board of Freeview and it's a normal board. You know, you're, you're appointed as a normal board director. It gives you all of the useful experience you need around organizing board meetings, being there, dealing with chairs, because boards can be quite formal places. So actually knowing, you know, the lingua franca, the way of working, how you interact with people, um, it's quite important actually because it can you can look like you don't really know what you're doing if you're not careful um, so I was on both those boards for a year and at the same time I was appointed to the board of the DMA the Direct Marketing Association now of course DMA is like you know home territory for me and that was much much easier but again unpaid um, on the board of a trade body again gives you lots of experience around how to run board meetings how to engage with your membership and then um it wasn't until so those were in 2011 2012 and then it was in 2016 i joined the board of origin housing and that was my first grown-up board i suppose in that regulated sector housing association lots of governance loads and loads of governance really have to be very careful about funding finance scrutiny transparency all of those kind of things so actually as a marketer those are all things that weren't necessarily my strong suits when I started out but you know have gained a lot of experience in that space and the reason why I joined that board and they wanted me was because of my CRM digital data experience and no one else on that board has the same experience I've got I'm unique on that board in that I know more about technology and customers and data and customer experience and all the rest of them are all housing professionals or finance professionals. So part of the trick is to figure out what you're good at and how you add diversity to a board and play those long suits, really play, play to those strengths rather than play them down. Now as a marketer, 
you won't necessarily be the obvious candidate for lots of boards because you know boards like lots of accountants they often take on hr professionals they'll often take on lawyers so as a marketer you've got to really think quite carefully about how you add value over and above just being a marketer and that's where the data and the digital bit came in it's really interesting i guess it also julia reflects slightly that board or the, the management of the chairing or the management of that board that they recognize that that's a skill set that they should bring in at that level as well so some boards will just pick what they know accountancy and very kind of information-based leadership whereas some boards are progressive enough and perhaps we'll see more of this that they realize not just the skills you've articulated but that broader commercial marketing and sales hat is a jolly good thing to have for not just commercial boards but for, for not-for-profits and for all sorts of other places where it's going to be a real helping hand yeah no i think you're right i mean i think i think that we've got a long way to go to make to make you know recruitment to boards as a more open and transparent but certainly all the boards i sit on my contribution is very much around you know the commercial side of the business so i sit on uh, i'm trustee of a charity i chair their fundraising committee and that is all about helping them to understand how they're going to raise money more efficiently and actually to not be embarrassed about fundraising it's interesting about charities is they go well you know it's a bit of the grubby end of the pipeline it's like well it's not because if you don't raise money you're not going to be able to give grants away so and, and part of it is to sort of you know encourage people not to be embarrassed about fundraising and then i also sit on the board of a, um, a replacement windows company a company called safe style and again you know there's only three neds on our board but of the three of us i'm the only commercial one the other two are very strong on finance um, and so actually I can see I add value because I, do, I have done something different to them in the past. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's creating balance in the team. You make it sound very easy, Julia, to have this amazing portfolio of non-execs, start your own business. But actually, and I know, and I can say this because I do know you well, I know how hard you've worked at building your own brand and invested in in learning new skills and training yourself and you know when you decided to set out to be a non-exec you know the effort that you put in to get those skills um but i'm also interested to know have you ever hit a glass ceiling um yes i think i think yeah yes uh, there is at least one job i did not get because i was a woman and, and, and the trouble, the trouble is, there's a, a friend of mine wrote a book um, called The Glass Wall, actually, which is well worth a read. And it talks about how it may not be overt, but actually there is this sort of theme of low level everyday sexism, which is really hard to put your finger on, but it exists. And so having the confidence to either call it out or to not pay attention is quite important. You know, the... I'm sure you've sat through this shame where you're, you're in a meeting, you're talking about a topic, I make a point, no one pays attention, my male colleague makes the same point and somehow that's a brilliant idea and you go, hang on a minute, I just said that. So there's all of those kind of issues but I think, you know, today women, I don't, I, I'm not a particularly shrill feminist, I think you just need to kind of make your points clearly and calmly and coach people into being kind of strong leaders. I loved Kamala Harris's speech the other day when she was talking about, I mean, I won't be 
the only woman who does this role and she was talking about you know there's lots of little girls out there who will see her as a role model and I thought that was fantastic you know see a woman like that actually finally getting to that leadership role and then recognizing how important it was as well it's an interesting listen, isn't it? Because it, back to your point around boards, there's still a long way to go with boards recognising marketing and commercial skills. Is it the same here, do you think, Julia, that whatever level of business, it's still a long way for effectively for, for men to give way and accept it's okay, you know, to not have this domination? Uh, it, or is it a generational thing? Do you think there's an element of, of younger, smaller businesses don't have that legacy? Any take on that? Well... So I think it's not just women as well. I mean, we're talking about diversity in the context of women, but actually talking about BAME mm. uh, candidates as well. Frankly, it's even worse. The fact that Kamala Harris is a woman and BAME is really interesting, actually. Um, I find in some tech businesses that the issues around, um, you know, how masculine that working environment is can be quite challenging. Um, and I think there's been plenty of stories about what happened in some of the big tech companies in the US, which which raises a few alarm bells, actually. And in some res some respects, I think, you know, we, we, we are going backwards. So I definitely don't think we're always heading in the right direction. Um, I think there's a few other things going on, you know, board roles to a large extent. There's still an element of networking. It's like who you know. And I think you're seeing... A lot of that who you know stuff going on in government at the moment so I think that's an issue so our jobs being advertised openly and transparently not always so companies that have to which are largely charities and housing associations and government appointments yes but if you look at uh, you know commercial companies then there's an awful lot going on in the background you never necessarily find out about these jobs so I think it's it's you know making it acceptable that actually there should be a fair and level playing field for applicants is important. And that it sort of brings us back to the first point, Julia, that, that you made about recognising the importance of balanced teams in, in the data protection network and the fact that your associates, you all have very different skills. And to me, it's the same in the board is that, you know, one dimensional boards are not healthy and they're not good. And I completely agree with you that often it's the small, fast growth tech that are the least diverse and actually that's often compounded by the backing and the finance um uh, teams that support them and so i think you know it's it is it is a challenge i think for for our industry and for all of us to think and reflect about how how do we how do we change that and how do we help each other so i think yeah lots to think about there it's an interesting, slightly different angle as well. There's a great book by a guy called Dan Lyons called Disrupted from about three years ago, where he was a 50-year-old employee at HubSpot, the marketing automation company. So a unicorn-style business that we're talking about and just how he found it really difficult being at least double the age of everybody else and, and that prejudice towards age, which sounds incredibly short-sighted, but very possible in lots of companies. It's not about his age, it's his vast experience that he brings in and really sad that that still is is part of this this landscape oh i mean but i mean the not invented his syndrome is alive and well i mean it's it that i think is is all over the place is people come in think that they're the first person to have thought of something don't necessarily want to find out what the experience has been elsewhere and then you're constantly reinventing the wheel i, I find it frustrating beyond belief and i think 
you know, ageism is part of it, but there is just generally a sentiment, and it can be people the same age as well. It's like finding it hard to listen to what everyone else has already learned. You know, if there was, a, you know, back, you, one of your questions, like what advice would you give people is go and find out what they've done already. <laughs> Try and figure out how to make the thing that's happening better rather than just reinventing it. Listening just feels like a, an underrated skill actually, because you find out so many things and it gets you to a solution far quicker than if you just try to figure it all out from first principles. Lovely advice. So we've had resilience, networking, the power of listening, any final tip for everybody listening that, that you know, through your career and to be doing what you're doing today that, you know, for people listening in that perhaps they should reflect on um, that you've learned, Julia? Um, I, well, I think my final thought is that you're never too old to learn something new. And um, that combined with don't be afraid to ask the dumb questions, because sometimes you might think, well, maybe I don't know, understand this thing because I'm too old or, you know, I'm a bit out of touch, or whatever it is. The chances are you're not. So just ask those dumb questions and what you'll often see is people around the table going, yeah, no, I wanted to ask that as well, but I was afraid to. So I think it's like, just go for it. I love that. And it's not even a question of age because I think that they're, you know, hopefully that the profile of our listeners is not all biased towards the older demographic, but it's that confidence. You mentioned that confidence of asking, you know, as you say, sometimes what might you might think is a dumb question. It's never a dumb question. And I see some fabulous now, like Steve moderating virtual conferences like you saying Julie you do lots of webinars um, seeing the questions coming from chat is one of to me the biggest brilliant things about the new world um, of conferences because everybody gets a chance to participate and particularly personas that perhaps wouldn't stick up a hand in a meeting room um, will jump onto chat and the contribution and the learnings are huge so i completely agree with you we'll, we can all carry on learning <laughs> we definitely can we definitely can julia look thanks ever so much for your time we'll we'll call a halt there because we know you've got so many plates to spin including dog walking probably as we come up to that point of the day so thank you so much for your time it's a pleasure i've enjoyed it well what a treat always lots to learn and it's always just such a pleasure we could have chatted for ages to Julia but some really key takeaways um hopefully for everybody what do you think Steve yeah yeah I totally agree Shane I think the challenge with Julia is we didn't have enough tape to be able to carry on recording for as long as we possibly could um I will but just pick up a couple of points Shane just for our listeners for their own sanity's sake and to uh, to remind them of their youthfulness uh, we aren't quite yet hospital radio in terms of our demographic uh, uh, we're not sponsored by Saga. We do have a really healthy mix. And if you uh, if you go and have a look, actually, at www.podcast.co.uk, which takes you to our LinkedIn page, we'll post out the demographics from season one. Uh, and indeed, Shane, as you may remember, what other people listen to when they're not listening to us, which is Dua Lipa and other youthful, cool artists and bands. So a real spectrum cool. of people that will have enjoyed that today is guess what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, very cool audience, definitely. And I think, you know, the, the thing for me is that, you know, meeting Julia fairly early on in, in my career is that the things that seem very obvious now and reflecting and looking back aren't always reflecting and obvious when you start. So I think, you know, I, I think there's so much we can all learn from each other and that networking point 
is so important even if it doesn't come naturally because people do want to help each other and I think what's been lovely about doing the what we've learned podcast is people have reached out through this and joined the conversation on LinkedIn and and actually tried to help each other there's been some some really good post podcast networking as a result yeah absolutely and it's interesting actually hearing it means even more actually hearing from someone like Julia dare I say it because for those the casual listener may not know that Shane actually was awarded the LinkedIn before LinkedIn existed award a few years ago weren't you Shane at a very prestigious ceremony I'm very very proud of that one yeah I know you still have that uh, statue statuette in your house that uh, that pride a place but yeah you you are and as you you just described you're very comfortable in a room and I think Julia probably embodies a lot of people that are more that omnivert perhaps not not introverted not extroverted but somewhere in the middle that find that thing quite intimidating Uh, and she really proves the point in terms of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone is hard but possible to do and and do in fairly manageable ways you know that one-to-one networking it doesn't have to be excuse me quantity of people you meet it's the quality um and and that company she's kept Shane as well we didn't even have time to talk about the fact that Julia chaired the Direct Marketing Association for a number of years and she's achieved so much that's really inspiring regardless of your background gender age ethnicity as as we talked about she really has um, built her own brand and in a in a healthy way rather than a kind of 2020 vacuous social media way that we perhaps associate with brand building or personal brand yeah, absolutely. I think that, that sort of point about brand building is a really good one to sort of reflect on. And it's about investing in yourself and investing in training and knowing that if you don't have certain skills, and it doesn't mean you, as Julia said, you don't mean you have to like doing them. But if you understand the importance um, and you learn how to do them, sometimes things that can seem difficult, hard, challenging I mean my first one was was learning to do public speaking and I hated every minute of it and I just because I was put on a stage in front of people had no training and that was my first ever experience it absolutely wow that's almost most people's nightmares it was a nightmare it was a nightmare come true yeah and it was yeah because my boss got a sore throat and 10 minutes beforehand said I can't do this and I think that that, you know, facing your demons almost, which is, I think, sort of as the subtext of what Julia was saying is that, you know, if there's things that perhaps are challenging. So I went and trained myself on on how to become, you know, a speaker and I can always do better and I'm always learning, but actually found out it quite enjoyed it once I knew what I was supposed to be doing and I think that's the same thing for all of us and that for me is a huge takeout is you know perhaps challenge yourself a bit more and things that seem scary you know learn how to do them yeah well I think just even a slightly simpler version of that from from my engagements with Julia uh, back at ITV which is when I first met her is being brave and she was in that digital role and and it's worth remembering in 2020 that 13 years ago was a long time ago when it comes to things like digital and social media and, and what she'd recognised I think is she needed to be or ITV needed to be brave with embracing, um, it wasn't even called social media back then Shane, it was social networking and my task alongside great guy Nick Emmel who was at DARE and I think is now at Mr President um, was to try and educate their brand and marketing and PR teams on social networks and at the time YouTube and Facebook which were just emerging and, and the potential value. And that was very much pushing 
on a closed door. But Julia was brave enough to say, look, we need to do things differently. Um, and dare I say it, sounds funny for me to say it, but she recognised she couldn't do on her own is to find through that network that she's got. And she talked about find people that can help her that have got like minded or, or shared skills, almost like her board um, synthesis that she talked about again is, well, she knows this is a problem, but she skills for it. How do I bring in people that can help me be brave uh, and turn the corner? as she so successfully did there and onwards with the guardian and all sorts of places that she's been into i think that's a really interesting point to us to pick up and actually think and ask our listeners you know where are the challenges that they're facing now where are they having to be brave what's our you know what's the new digital barrier you know what are the people facing now that perhaps isn't obvious to everybody else in their organization so i think that would be good to hear because then we could find we could find a really good guest to really explore that one another really good guest yeah absolutely i think it's a great way to end is to say look i hope you've enjoyed today and found julia's insight and, and experience useful to you but to shane's probe well what are you struggling with we come and let us know you can go on to wwlpodcast.co.uk as I said, it roots through to our LinkedIn home. Go and add a post into uh, this particular episode when you hear it and let us know. Is it one word answer of this is what you're struggling with? Maybe you've solved it or maybe you know someone that solved it and we'd happily like to hear their story or yours. Or it may inspire us to go and find somebody else that might solve that problem for us all. So as ever, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Shane, to you. And most importantly, thank you to Julia Porter. We will see you again soon.